Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we aim to go deep into the stories shaping the world's most exciting region. I'm Andrew People. Well, this week we're really happy to be joining forces with the Centre for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy at the Brussels School of Governance for the first in a series of episodes. CSDS is home to a rich expertise on Asia with its Japan programme and career chair and is working to enhance understanding of Asia's security matters in Europe and promote greater engagement between the two regions. Now, of course, we hope that all episodes of Asia Matters prove informative, but for this first collaboration with CSDS, we're going to focus on the topic of disinformation, a subject that's become hugely controversial in international relations. Governments, academics and journalists have been paying ever closer attention to alleged disinformation campaigns from Russian interference in major elections to the efforts of China's so-called wolf warrior diplomats. But what exactly is disinformation? Who is spreading it and how are they doing it? How much impact is it really having on the ground? And what efforts should governments take to counter its effects? Well, to discuss these issues and more, we have two excellent guests. Lutz Gullner is the head of strategic communications at the European External Action Service. That's the EU's diplomatic service. And Bonji O'Hara, he's a senior fellow at the Sasakawa Peace Foundation and an expert in defense issues. And he joins us from Tokyo today. Welcome to both of you. At the outset of this discussion, I think it'd be useful to define what we're talking about. Lutz, can you first talk about what we mean by disinformation, particularly as it relates to states? Thank you, Andrew. And a very important question at the outset, because terminology matters in this. We use the term disinformation too broadly as a catch-all phrase for all sorts of phenomena in terms of a societal issue, but also in terms of a security issue. And that is the element that I would like to refer to, because we can see disinformation and disinformation campaigns as very intentional activities, very often coordinated with clear political, sometimes even economic aims. And what is really important to understand is that these information manipulation activities are not only aiming at promoting a specific narrative, but that they are aiming at interfering into the information space. And that also includes issues like the suppression of voices, controlling certain conversations as well. So coercive elements by intimidating, for example, uh, people who are out there who want to have a genuine discussion about specific issues. So important is really this move from disinformation as defined by content and as defined by true and false to move towards an activity that aims of manipulating the information space. That, I think, is a crucial element in terms of terminology. Bonji, is that a definition or a sense of disinformation that you share? I mean, how, in your view, for example, does disinformation differ from the normal course of political spin where leaders of countries and politicians exaggerate or use facts selectively to help their arguments? Many countries engage in activities to make their case within the target country, region, or international community in order to gain support for their country. But usually those methods are called public diplomacy or strategic communication. 
in comparison, this information is more aggressive usually. Sometimes mm. it is used to、uh, overthrow the、uh, government of the target countries or to obtain the、uh, excuse to、uh, intervene the issues in the target countries. As the、uh, Lut said, the disinformation campaign has specific political intention, sometimes malicious information. I see. Do you think it's right to see Russia as the pioneer of this kind of modern state disinformation and these kinds of activities? It's the country. That we often associate with disinformation, partly because of what happened in U.S. politics over the last few years. And if that is the case, what are the main tools that Russia is using to spread disinformation? Well, Russia has been, or as we call it, pro-Kremlin actors, because we can never talk about an entire state. It's always pockets, very often, of the security apparatus or of the army or other parts. So pro-Kremlin actors have been extremely active over the past few years, but of course the whole issue of disinformation, of manipulation, of propaganda is nothing that has only emerged kind of recently. It's a very very old issue. What really has changed is the technological means that are being used, and of course social media, but many other technological. Elements and ways to disseminate, to reach people,、uh, to engage people, and there the Russian sources, the pro-Kremlin sources, have been quite active, and they're quite visible as well. We find also they are quite aggressive in their strategies, in the way they do this, and how are they doing this? It is, as I said before, not only a question of disinformation and spreading a specific narrative. It is sometimes also interfering in an ongoing discussion. And just to give a more tangible example, when we saw the poisoning of the ex-Russian agent in the UK, for example, we have seen from these pro-Kremlin sources not kind of the one narrative to promote a certain view, a certain vision. It was a strategy that aimed at sowing confusion. And pushing out many different versions of the story of Mr. Skripal, with the ultimate aim of discrediting any version of those. So really, to interfere in that form, and that is important to distinguish. And I think what is also important for our discussion here is to keep in mind that each actor that is out there, be it state actor or be it a non-state actor, have always their very specific ways, specific aims also that they want to pursue. Absolutely, Bonji. Turning to Asia, then, China has been accused of spreading disinformation recently by some governments and think tanks. What evidence is there, to your mind, that links China and its government potentially with spreading disinformation overseas? We could not find Chinese-specific disinformation campaign in 2015-2016. The report said China-linked network of the social media appeared in the global disinformation scene in 2019. In these two years, the Chinese disinformation campaign is getting sophisticated. Government organization or the think tank found many China-linked faked account or the、uh, hijacked social media account. Those situation shows those information campaign. Has the specific intention to spread malicious information. For example, the 2020 presidential election in the United States, 
China uh, linked spreader conduct a campaign to criticize President Trump at the time and also candidate Biden. The uh, information spread to outside of the United States. Some influencer in the foreign countries of the uh, United States also got the uh, information and uh, spread the information to the others. So those kind of campaign may have the impact on the United States to lose the trust in the uh, international community. Lutz, from your perspective, do you see a difference between the way that China is using disinformation allegedly and the way that Russian actors are spreading disinformation? Is there a difference in methodology? Is there a difference in the aims that they have? Yes, definitely. And we have to recognize that. And that's why the term disinformation using for the same activities can be quite misleading. And we need to be careful, again, with the terminology, as we said. There were some overlaps if we look at content, if we look at narratives. In a moment of the question of the, let's say, the pandemics and the the battle for the narratives, where we saw even overlapping messages from pro-Russian disinformation sources in terms of where the virus comes from, that this comes from a U.S. biolab, for example, which were then taken up also by Chinese actors, for example. But all in all, we need to make a big distinction. I think Chinese actors are not so much out there to sow mistrust, to disrupt, but really to shape, to influence. I think that's a huge difference to kind of the more destructive way of sowing discord that we see, for example, related to pro-Kremlin actors. And we can also see it as the way, for example, a specific model is promoted. So that is, in my view, the biggest difference between those two activities. I see. Bonji, can I turn to why we should be worried about this? First of all, from your point of view as as an academic, who's leading the research in this area? What methodologies are you using to sort of measure the impact of disinformation and how much it really affects public opinion and so on in countries that are the targets of disinformation? Yes, we need to take care of disinformation because disinformation undermines the trust uh, the country in the international community and result in damage to the national interest. In addition, this information can undermine public trust in the government and degrade the functioning of the government and disrupt society. Domestic turmoil can give the actors behind the disinformation campaign an excuse to intervene. So yes, as Ruth said, Chinese disinformation campaigns are different from the Russian in this moment. But this uh, information can be used to many purposes. So we need to recognize the dangers. Now, I think Europe and the United States are studying disinformation and also the uh, spread themselves. Now the uh, Japanese government starts being interested. The uh, main actor uh, must be intelligent society in the government and also the military forces. But Japan is much behind. Think tanks and academy, also the uh, journalists, are playing the uh, leading role in disinformation campaign studies. So there are more and more 
observers trying to look into disinformation, see how it operates and try to measure its impact. But what evidence has been found so far of its actual impact? So for example, when you have the wolf warrior diplomats from China, what's the evidence that they actually change opinion in countries outside of China? Lutz, have you seen anything where we can sort of measure the impact of disinformation? We need to be careful not to have a two, let's call it one-dimensional perspective, that it is a vector aimed at a specific moment, at a specific narrative. That is certainly not how it works. It can be that in the specific moments of what we call pressure points, you know, like elections, for example, that this provides a context. But the real impact of disinformation of information manipulation is twofold. The first one is kind of the medium to long-term shaping narratives, shaping norms, and having this either corrosive or shaping influence. That's the one side. Very difficult to measure in objective, quantitative terms. But we see, of course, the more these issues are deployed, the more they are visible, the more there are also reference points then. And the second one is you also have to see these disinformation and information manipulation campaigns in the context of other activities. That can be cyber activities, for example, famous hack and leak operations, for example, or a broader influence campaigns, which goes then much more into the area of controlling or of influencing media systems, uh, can go into the area of having an impact on, for example, academic debates. And that is really the crucial element here to look at. Is it fair to say that some of the what we call disinformation is actually domestically targeted? And again, I'd use the example of the wolf warrior diplomats in China who've been making assertive statements about China and China's system of government and its alleged successes and so on. It seems to me that much of that could be aimed at a domestic audience. It's showing that the Chinese diplomatic service, for example, is standing up for China. So it's not actually intended to particularly change opinions outside of China. What do you both think of that? Is that a sort of fair comment, Lutz? Yeah, I think it's a bit more complex. I think it is both at the same time. You cannot make a clear distinction or kind of make two different baskets. You know, the one is for external, the other one is for internal. We see this also by other actors, you know, with the pro-Kremlin media. There is, of course, a very clear target to sow confusion, but with narratives that very much kind of support a specific narrative that, uh, in that case, for example, the government or other actors want to promote. And I think with regard to China, it's exactly the same issue. The wolf warriors, of course, want to send also a message to their own constituency that they're out there. But funny enough, a lot of this activity is happening on Twitter, which you cannot even follow in China. So right. there is also the element that this is aimed clearly at external audiences. But as I said, you cannot distinguish the one kind of in totally separate boxes. I see. I want to turn to how countries and the EU in particular as well can counter disinformation. You said that in Japan, Bonji, people are gradually waking up to this issue. 
What's been the Japanese experience so far? You touched on it a bit there, but do Japanese people, the government and so on, do they see these disinformation campaigns happening? Are they being affected by these campaigns? And is there any semblance yet of a response? Is there any cooperation between Japan, say, and other countries to try and counter disinformation? Yes, the impact of the disinformation campaign conducted by foreign countries are not such big in Japan. Some argue that because of the uh, uniqueness of the grammar of Japanese language, but yeah. Japan also has disinformation experience in the COVID-19 situation. It is not conducted by foreign countries. A disinformation was spread. It said face mask, the product also used the same material of the paper product, like the tissue papers or some other papers. So many Japanese rushed to the store to buy paper product. And also the similar situation about face mask. So the Japanese government need to calm the situation and provide face masks to every Japanese people. So uh, it shows those kind of disinformation also has the uh, impact on the function of the uh, government. So we need to understand what is disinformation and what kind of information we can trust, I think. So the COVID situation has shown that Japan is potentially vulnerable to disinformation, even if potentially the language barrier makes it less of a threat than it may be to, to other countries. Let's, what about Europe then? What's the response? What is being seen as the way to counter disinformation? After all, obviously in Europe, there are strong traditions of free speech and, and so on that need to be respected. But as you said before, disinformation is part of a, a number of threats, including broader cybersecurity threats. So, so does Europe need a, a holistic approach to countering disinformation? And where are we on that? How is that being developed at the moment? No, you're absolutely right on. We need holistic approaches, holistic in the sense of understanding that disinformation is only very often part and parcel of a broader strategy. And we need a holistic approach in terms of, let's say, involving the entire society in this, because it is not just a government issue where some government department can solve a problem. You know, this is where society meets international security, let's call it like this. But maybe important for our approach is really to take a step back and to say, what is it that we want to protect? It's good to be against disinformation, but why? Because, and that is the important thing, because we feel, we're convinced, we want to protect our way of life, our democracy, our civic discourse, and the way we translate this also into practice in our elections, for example. And then we need to look at why is it under pressure and where are the potential risks? And maybe the COVID-19 situation that Bonji just referred to was really an eye-opener for the European Union and for many of us, because we have seen how tangible and how concretely this information manipulation and disinformation can have an impact on the health situation, on the trust of citizens in their government. And of course, always with the underlying kind of big picture issue of maybe getting a picture of other 
systems, you know, maybe more authoritarian systems that seem to function much better in these crises. So this is really what is what is happening and what we need to put into consideration. So we have done this for a couple of years already, of course, now accelerated with COVID-19 and think there are three pillars that are really crucial to look at when we speak about protecting our democracy. The first one is how do we organize our electoral systems? How do political parties also act in this? How they're financed? How can they advertise, etc.? The second element is really media. And there are so many aspects that we don't have time really to talk about now in this podcast, but about the quality of, uh, let's say, of journalistic standards. But that is linked also to the structure, to economic situation, to trustworthiness, to so many things that we need to look at. And the third leg would then be the element on disinformation. And I do it very short. We have, I think we are quite proud here in Europe, in the European Union, to have developed an approach which brings together, let's say, two or three elements at the same time. The first one is the whole element of supporting the resilience of the society against disinformation. Resilience in that sense means how do you deal with this? How do you understand that you're vulnerable? How do you promote, for example, media literacy? How can you spot disinformation? The second element is we need to look at the dissemination elements. So here, the key issue is regulation of, for example, social media actors, the platforms. And there we have important legislation in the pipeline, the Digital Services Act, but also a predecessor to that. And the third one is the security dimension that I refer to. So also to develop instruments that allow us to either say reactively or proactively push back on these activities, either by imposing costs for those actors or to find ways that kind of deter also disinformation activities. I think so. Our approach is fairly multifaceted and quite broad. And that is important. And that is good that we discuss it here also on the podcast, because this is nothing even that Europe will be able to do alone. We Mm. need to work with our partners be it on the one side of the Atlantic or on the side of the Pacific. And these are a little bit the approaches. Are more resources needed, though? The EU's foreign affairs chief, Joseph Borrell, recently said that the bloc's been trying to counter Russian disinformation, but it doesn't have the resources to counter Chinese disinformation. What did he really mean by that? How does the EU, how has it concluded that China's disinformation reached a point that it needs resources to counter and what kind of resources are we talking about that would be needed? Well, we need two things. And what uh, Mr. Borrell, the high representative, said in the European Parliament was to say, look, it's still quite a new phenomenon. You know, we're building up. We need to understand and we don't yet have the full structures, you know, also in our own organization to fully deal with this and we need to further invest. But the second element that I think is really important is that It is neither the external action service of the European Union nor the European Union alone dealing with this. So his call was also to make this a societal issue that covers the civil society, that covers the governments and also researchers. I think this is a holistic idea is so important here. We've talked quite a lot about states and obviously Europe's response, Japan's response and state actors here. We haven't really touched upon the role of the big social media companies like Facebook and Twitter and so on. 
in countering disinformation. Is there more that those companies should be doing? Is there more that countries should be doing to get them to act against disinformation? Lutz, I'll, I'll turn to you first and then come to Onji on that. Yeah, my answer is pretty clear and simple. Yes, they need to do more. And that is exactly why we put in place or uh, we started kind of even clear regulation, clear legislation that will also oblige them to do more. And what is it that we want from them? We don't want them to be judge of what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is untrue. But we want them to take much more responsibility, much more accountability and transparency. These are really the three ideas that we have in our draft legislation that we have out there, which is called the Digital Services Act. So in a nutshell, what we want the platforms to do in the future is to recognize the systemic risk that disinformation and the manipulation of their services represents for the society, for our politics, for our democracy and that they need to put in place effective and meaningful ways of dealing with this. We call it risk mitigation strategies. So the proper structures, proper mechanisms that don't make them the judge, again, of what is good and what is bad, but that make them accountable. So this is, I think, the big picture. Of course, if you then go deeper, it would be much more complex in the different areas. But I think this is really the, the core of the issues that we want from them. Sorry, and when you say making them accountable, what does that mean? You mean accountable for what is published on their sites? No, that is, for example, the way their services can be used or misused and sometimes even tricked out, you know. For example, the famous algorithmic spread. So how can these algorithms be manipulated in a way by those actors that disinformation has a much higher ranking, for example, in their distribution. So what you and your friends see by using certain tricks, you know, there are, some of them are technical, some of them are very easy. And we want the platforms to put in place mechanisms that prevent these elements from happening, that not the disinformation is being pushed up because somebody can manipulate it, their systems, their algorithms, the way kind of these platforms are functioning. That's one element. And the other part of the accountability is that you can make a lot of money with disinformation, either on the side of the platforms, you know, with, of course, what do we call the monetarization in terms of advertisement and other issues, or in terms of the disinformation actors, you know, that can use simple issues like clickbait to promote their own narratives and disinformation. So these are two tangible elements, and there are plenty of others, and the list is quite long, in my view. Bonji, where's the debate on this in Japan in terms of getting the big social media companies, both the international ones and the ones that you have in Japan itself, on side in the fight against disinformation? As you know, the Japan does not have those kind of company, but uh, still Japanese people trust the company when it comes to share the information. The SNS. Social media changed the uh, situation of information sharing. Now the young generation uh, in Japan usually do not watch TV programs. They are getting information from network. So their life and also the uh, economic activities, social activities uh, depends on network uh, information sharing. Of course, I agree with Lutz. We need the uh, regulation. At the same time, 
we need to uh, educate the society. What I say, uh, they have the uh, literacy about information sharing on the network. Also, the uh, government need to have system to detect accurate information or disinformation early. Then publish correct information as a countermeasure to the uh, disinformation campaign. So if we want to educate society or establish the uh, system to detect disinformation, the government itself need to learn the situation. In this regard, academic, university, and institute think tank can make the uh, leading role to study the disinformation. And also we need to uh, cooperate with other countries to uh, share experience and knowledge. So now the cooperation between yeah, Japan and the European countries is essential uh, to uh, deal with the disinformation campaign, I think. Both of you really are talking about an all-society response and international cooperation here. It's been fascinating listening to both of you, and thank you both for joining us. That's all we have time for for this episode. I'd like to thank Rebecca Bailey, who's been producing this episode. We'd love to hear your views on this. And there's lots of ways you can get in touch with us. There's our website, which is asiamatterspod.com. We have a Twitter account, of course, at Asia Matters Pod. There's no disinformation there, or at least none that we know of. Uh, so please do contact us. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or another platform, do leave us a rating. My thanks also again to CSDS for partnering with us on this podcast. Thank you as well for listening and goodbye.